0: Hello, my name is Allison Vaca, and I'm Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and here today for the podcast series of the Society for Armenian Studies. We have the opportunity to talk today with Dr. Christina Maranci, the Arthur H. Dardayan and R. T. Oztemel Professor of Armenian Art and Architecture at Tufts University. Professor Maranci's first book, Medieval Armenian Architecture, which came out in 2001, explored how concerns about race and nation informed the interpretation and classification of medieval Armenian art. We're here today to talk about her recent book, Vigilant Powers, Three Churches of Early Medieval Armenia, which was published by Brepols in 2015. It won the Sona Aronian Award for the Best English Language Volume on Armenian Studies from the National Association of Armenian Studies and Research in 2015 and the 2018 Carrot. Uh, Karen Gold Prize of the Medieval Academy of America, an award for a book of outstanding quality in medieval art history. Thank you, Dr. Marcy, for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Alice Buffett.
1: honor by the likes of you, yourself a very fine scholar, and I thank um, the SAS for organizing this podcast series. What a great idea, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: Great. So, um, before we get started on Vigilant Powers, could you explain to our listeners about your training and background? So, how did you get interested in art history?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, since I was a child, I always loved and I loved horses when I was a little girl and um, never stopped and then I started to just love everything that was pretty and so I majored in art history in college. I also drew a little bit, like many art historians, recent art historians, I drew a little bit on the side, but um, I really loved learning about history through art, since I'm really no good at history. Um, I I liked art history. It doesn't really work like that, but, you know, I mean, (laughs) art history, anyway. Um, Yeah, so I I majored in art history uh, at Vassar College, and um, I, I really started to kind of gravitate towards Armenian art through my training in medieval art, Western medieval art at Vassar, um, they didn't offer Armenian art, of course, and nobody knew much about it uh, back in the '80s, I think it was. <laughs> but um, but but it was through the kind of abstraction of medieval art that I I found myself on a journey eastward, via Byzantium to uh, Armenia. Where I found myself in graduate school. Yeah, so that's sort of um, that was that was kind of how I. I, it, it worked for me in a much more pragmatic sense. Um, I applied to study Gothic architecture at Columbia my first year out of uh, Vassar and I didn't get in. And now looking back on it, I'm so glad because it took a few years um, for me to reorient quite literally, um, take a trip with Nina Garsoian to uh, Cars and Artvin and the Ani region um, and find myself, uh, you know, pursuing Armenia, so it, sometimes things work out for the best, even though you don't know it at the time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like quite the voyage, especially to be able to travel with someone like you Nina know, Garsoyan as well.
1: It, yeah, it was incredible, sorry I just talked over you, but it was incredible, and Nicole Thierry was on that trip too, um, oh, wow. and it was a French group, and uh, it was before I really knew anything about Armenia, you can imagine how strange that was, but the monuments of Taukar JT. Um, in particular, will always stay with me for that reason. And uh, I'm ever grateful to Niagar and Thomas Matthews and Nicole Terry for really comforting me towards um, Armenia at that formative moment.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. So, um, if you can just sort of um, start us off with a general overview of moving into talking about Vigilant Powers, could you just walk us through maybe the main arguments or some of the examples that you used? And maybe even also sort of like the parameters of how you decide what goes in the book? Absolutely,
1: sure. And just forgive my cat, Busty, because he will be interrupting at times. Um, okay, so the, the book um, focuses on three monuments, and um, and it, it, it's, it's a very close study of three monuments, uh, which I'll talk about in more detail later, um, that belong to the 7th century uh, and were produced um, between, let's say, the 620s and probably the 660s and 70s. And it might seem a very tiny, tiny little uh, window into um, the vast and rich subject of Armenian art, but in fact, it's a very, very important one because. Um, because of the, the historical moment um, in which those monuments were produced. So the, so really it's three chapters on, and each one a close study of, of the monument. And when I say the monument, I mean uh, the architecture, the the, the, the historical um, situation in which the monument was constructed, that is the patronage of, of the work, the powers that were around during that time. Um, and as you know, they shifted around a fair amount in the 7th century, and um, sculpture and inscriptions. And um, the point was, and then there's an introduction and conclusion. Uh, but the point was to do some very close work on the monuments, and I keep saying that because in general Armenian architecture, or let's say hitherto, Armenian architecture was typically studied or its formal uh uh, formal and structural properties, and for sure, those things are very interesting and important. But but if you only study them, you miss out on I think a really fascinating um, uh, historical um, insight into this critical moment in time. But also, uh, you miss out on what architecture can do in a landscape and how it can change, how it can project ideas and how it can um, reflect uh, the situation around it as well, often when we we don't have um, other kinds of sources that say the same thing. So I was very keen on being as um, rigorous and diligent as I could with the monument in its totality. And so I did that for, understandably, as you can imagine, three, only three monuments. Um, But I think it could be done with other, um, other, other monuments as well. So that's the kind of the shape of the book.
0: Wonderful, thanks. So uh, you mentioned the historical moment of the seventh century, and particularly as a critical moment in time. Could you, for some of the listeners, especially who maybe work on the more modern period, explain a little bit about you know the placement of Armenia and what's going on in the seventh century?
1: Right in that. So um, in the seventh century, uh, Armenia is positioned as a kind of border between the Byzantine world and. First, the Sasanian Persian world, and then, um, you know, within a few decades of the 7th century, the emerging Islamic world. Um, and this is a radical change, change that, that historians do, correct me, you're a historian, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: but historians used it's to think about as a kind of break between the ages. But in any event, however you want to slice it, it does mean a kind of re- a reconfiguring of the, the political landscape of um, the Mediterranean and the Near East. So um, what's so interesting is that in this moment, when you have a shift from um, the Byzantine sphere, Byzantine and Persian sphere to a Byzantine and Islamic world kind of emerging, you have just at this moment in the early, the mid-seventh um, century have the production of large corpus of monuments, nothing like anything else in West Asia or really many other um, places around the Mediterranean um, are doing this. So it was a great question to me: asked what these monuments were doing, being built at this moment, and what it revealed about local conditions for me was very interesting. Um, I I think that we all need to. Do a better job of thinking across disciplinary boundaries. And for me, it was really important to read historical sources as much as I could to think about the setting of these monuments in their contexts and the roles of the patrons um, in the broader historical frame. So, for example, my first chapter on Moren looked very closely at local elites um, and their relationship with the emperor Heraclius. And what I found uh, in some ways complemented uh, the um, narrative that we hear from the history attributed to Sibios, um, which is a 7th century historical chronicle of great importance to understanding um, uh, the Near East and the emerging Islamic world. Um, so I, I was very um, interested in how, again, taking the example of Mren, uh how, how Meren could be understood in that in a contextual, and historical contextual
0: uh, way. Right, thanks. So, if we can continue on with the discussion of Moraine then. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I thought this was a really interesting um, analysis here of the image of Heraclius and the return yeah. of the true cross, the cross that supposedly Jesus was crucified on yeah. and sort of the political implications of what that meant, that he had to go all the way uh, to go retrieve it uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about sort of Armenian understandings of Heraclius and um, and how he was portrayed, but also you mentioned Sebios and I was kind of curious as well as the other sources that you use to tell this story. Hmm. yeah,
1: that's a, that's a good question. I'll start with the first thing, Armenian understandings of Heraclius. Um, so, he, as much as we can tell, and I rely on Tim Greenwood to, um, for, for educating me on this subject, um, Heraclius was understood as kind of victorious figure um, with the the, um, the reclamation or the return of the cross after um, after it was held hostage by the Persians and this is this is um revealed in Cbiius but also in uh, the inscription at Maran where we hear him, talked about as the all praiseworthy, and I'm forgetting the Armenian term now, Heraclius, uh, on the foundation inscription. So, um, this, in a way, kind of complements what we know about him from But There's other kinds of evidence, archaeological evidence, for um and Salidi that, uh, that were found, for example, at Devin. Um So, one can put together a picture of a an emperor who was well known in um, in Armenian circles, and of course, there's always there's the whole question about his own ethnicity, which I will not get into <laughs> at this time. But um, but he was closely he was closely connected to uh, the Armenian world, um, and in my book, I go on at some length about his interest in confessional um, compromise between the Armenian. and the So. There are many points of contact uh, between Heraclius and Armenia, Um, and I think Moran can be understood in that Um, frame. Does that help?
0: Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Um, So, um, besides Moran, you also talk a lot, uh, you have a chapter on notes, which I think is probably the most recognizable church for a general audience. Um, since the ruins remain today so close to Yerevan. Uh, and you can even see the proposed reconstructions or um, what, how it may have looked in the, in the museum in Yerevan, of course. Um, could you tell us a bit in general about this church and why it matters and maybe why it's captured the imagination of so many people? Oh, what a great
1: question. I love that. Much. I love the church that looks like that reconstruction. You may hear a fight among my cats right now because I hear growling. So, just okay, <laughs> I think it just passed. <laughs> okay, um, so is just amazing. First of all, it's unprecedented design around essentially around structure, especially um, the and within it is a quadrupole which is um, made up of open X-ray of columns. This is amazing. So, we don't see this anywhere else as far as we know. Of course, you always you know, wonder about what's underneath the ground. But um, I think that's a part of it, that it's so unusual. I think another part of it is, um, is sort of the, the modern sto- So, formally, it's very interesting. And, of course, we know that Ibios describes it, and later um,
0: Chronicles
1: describe it as this magnificent, unbelievable place. Um, so it has a whole kind of, uh, maybe... Dachleben in, uh, the sources, sorry, is Somerville, so you're gonna have to deal with some occasional ambulances. Um, <laughs> you're gonna, so, yeah, so, there's a whole kind of life that this monument has that suggests that, yeah, when it was standing, it was really a remarkable building. Almost a myth, mythology of Svartnag's grows up around it. Yeah, okay. Um, and, but the modern story of Svartnag's is equally interesting, uh, you know, if you go to Svartnag's, you Bust, a big bust of Horomanian, first Horomanian, who was um, archeologist, one of the archeologists at the site, uh, and who created those iconic construction drawings and models. Uh, I've re- written about this in a separate uh, piece, but I think part of what captures our attention about Sparbonne is not just the sort of seventh century moments, um, the ruins of which you can see, go to the site but also this kind of um, mythology that grows up around it both the medieval and the modern and tomanions association with that monument um, even extending now into the the middle of the 20th century with the industrial uh, interpretation of za in, in Zvartlansky airport um, so it just goes on and on yeah it's so it's, it's just an amazing building and um, I there's really, it's unusual in the context of Armenian architecture. It's unusual in the context of really any architectural tradition. Now, of course, I had to talk about it. Plus, for the for the purposes of my book, um, there are inscriptions and there is relief sculpture. And I should just say as an aside that what I tried to do with choosing these three, that was probably going to be one of your questions. Um, but choosing these three is pick ones that had the most sort of data of different, so not just the building, but an inscription, not just those two things, but sculpture. Even better to have historical sources talk about the building, so that I could use the ones that were the most sort of robustly attested in a variety of ways. Um, and Zvartnots was obviously one of those. Uh, yeah.
0: Right, perfect. Thanks. Um, so your third example, though, um, you talk about... The Iranian ethos of medieval Armenia, and this is particularly interesting for me for my own work. So I'll go ahead and be a little selfish here, um, and, yeah. and ask you to kind of put this into an art historical context for me about um, the connections between Iran and um, and how that shows up in our material evidence. Yeah, well,
1: um, I'm doing an interview with you on your book because I want to hear more about that from. <laughs> but, okay, I will, I will talk a little bit about how I see it. So, as you know, there's been a lot of work on the kind of Iranian... Um, Darslan uses the term substratum, or this, this kind of um, sense of ironization that we have in Armenia in early periods. Uh, and we can see this, you know, we see it in a variety of textual sources. Um, uh, but we also can see it in um, material and visual ways. And art historians like Tom Matthews have looked to representations of the Magi, uh, for example, in the 7th century Etch- uh, part of the Etchmiyats and Gospels, um, among you know, various kinds of um, uh, examples. What I looked at with Pudrini is um, kind of, uh, I should say, in, in, in contrast to the, to, to the bab natsan doesn't come with any really helpful... Information um, in terms of sources, textual sources, um, what we have is almost limited to the bas relief imagery on the the church, um, which I looked at very carefully, obviously, because I believe that imagery is is not it can tell its own story and isn't necessarily, um, you know, is is, is let's, let me put it this way: it's it's interesting acts as historical information just have to read it. Um, so the imagery particularly shows a scene of Christ with apostles, um, three on each side. This is on the south facade of the church. And then two scenes of hunters, uh, one of them with a bow and arrow, and one um, uh, on a horseback, and the other uh, with a pole weapon. And the one with the bow and arrow on horseback really looks like... like something you might, it, it evokes what you would see in Sasanian silver from the same period and, and earlier. Uh, so I was very interested in thinking about um, potential meaning of um, the hunter. And so I looked at Sasanian silver and started thinking about the hunt and what it meant in that context. And, um, and this silver connects us also to banqueting, which is another theme I explore when looking at the north façade of Ptolemy, which shows vessels, carved vessels. and Who was it? I think it was, um, I forget now who the, the scholar was, who said or noted that these vessels that we see carved onto the north façade of Ptolemy look a lot like Sasanian vessels. Uh, ewers, for example, pictures ewers, various kinds of um, uh, tall vessels, some with handles, um, Without, so this again um, pointed me towards uh, towards Stanian work and towards the banquet, and so I, it really became a church that for me expressed the um, expressed visually the, the noble pastimes par excellence um, in both the Armenian and the, um, the Iranian world of banqueting and hunting and. Um, and so that's the context. And, and, and as an expression of, of, of elite status in Armenia, so um, I used that and put it together with what we know about the, the presumed patrons of the, the Amatuni um, to develop my kind of narrative about the church. So, so it was fun. It was different from the other, um, the other two churches in that it was really a, a kind of more of a visual... Uh, looking at the visual evidence in a very different frame and thinking about um, the connections with um, Sasanian imagery and what that might be.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Yeah, I think these connections both, not just between Armenia and Iran, but Armenia and the broader world are part of what makes Vigilant Powers a really such a successful book. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. You know, you say you're going to place Armenian architecture on a world stage. Could you just explain that for a minute? Yeah, sure. So
1: really, um, I love that term. I guess I I do, too. Um, but, so it came, this is this something I thought about a lot with Svartanals, and I'll just return, if I can just return yeah, to Svartanals course. for a minute. Um, so Svartanals is a church that has been interpreted in a variety of ways. Um, some scholars see in it Byzantine connections, I did myself, um, I do, but um, very strong in terms of Greek inscriptions and Greek... Um, the iconography from Byzantine seals can be found in this uh, architectural program, um, and the patron's own connections with the Byzantine sphere. But some of the other scholars see it in relation to Syria and Mesopotamian monuments, because there we find um, uh, a non-exact, because violence is unprecedented, but similar ground plans of what we call in the parlance of architectural historians, Isle Tetraconx. Um, and some other historians put it into the context of Jerusalem and look at connections with the Anastasis Rotunda, and um, and that those scholars focus particularly on the round exterior shell. So I was really struck. I think when you're working at a church like that, you just think, well, what is it? And it came to me. I started thinking about it, and this came really after reading and um, the Anonymous Chronicle from the 7th century and Ananya Shirakatsi's uh, Geography, that what's so interesting about the texts of the time, if we read them, we get this kind of strong consciousness of, of a broader world, particularly with the, the arrival um, of Islam. This, this is really a kind of global moment. Um, at least that's how I, I um, construe it. And if, if we think about how text to and I'm not making this up, this is Mahe who's done this before me. Um, and but if we think about, you know, Mahe's observations in relation to the churches, and particularly Zvarvots, I think I'm really talking about Zvarvots here. We can think about it not just as a kind of set of fractured stylistic connections with various traditions, but in fact as a kind of coming together, a convergence of cultures at this particular moment. Um, in which Armenia really is in the middle of everything. Um, and then putting that together with the structural appearance of the church of our set up on this this um, stepped platform, it very much belongs to a kind of architectural, it makes me think of an architectural statement like the Dome of the Rock, which is how I, I end that chapter. That this, I think, if we're going to think about the relationship of texts and architecture, we can, we can build an um, an idea that, that really shows how architecture uh, sort of pre- um, makes a statement about its place on, in the world. And I think that Zvartos does that, and not an unsimilar way to the Dome of the Rock in terms of the kinds of arguments it makes as a building um, that is kind of establishing authority in the landscape and a kind of giving the sense of universality. So we can think about those various influences whether Jerusalemic, Syria, Byzantine, Byzantine Armenian, as I a, as a, think a totality that is placing Armenia and Spartanus for sure on this world stage. That's a kind of little um, summation of what I try to talk about in that chapter. But, of course, my own goals as an architectural historian is to place Armenia on the world stage, and we'll get there. I think eventually Armenia will take center stage in architectural history. It's, it's going to happen.
0: Yes, definitely. Right. So, um, I'm out of curiosity, say, could you um maybe pick out a single uh, kind of fun fact or detail that you yeah. kind of came across as you were working on this project or you, you stumbled onto that yeah. kind of struck your fancy or uh, absolutely
1: my favorite and the one that's the most nerdy of all <laughs> is um the inscription at Moran that I deciphered. Um and the story of mine is very interesting and I've told it elsewhere, but I um I was essentially in the building kind of hiding and um and took a lot of pictures and I took pictures of the apps uh the inscription which hadn't been translated before. It's really fragmentary and um I don't know. I mean I, so I had to take careful pictures and then together with Stephen Sim who um, Is a virtual ani person. Oh right. Um, Yeah, he made an Adobe Illustrator version of the of the you know using all the photographs. He made an Adobe Illustrator with that program. Made a kind of drawing of the the apps together and with the inscription. So with the letters that were there, I was like, I had to figure out what the inscription said, of course, and it was hard because some of the letters weren't trans weren't you know put down correctly um, in the adobe so there is there are some differences there anyway so I tried for a long time I had only just a few letters but I mean you knew it was going to be a kind particular kind of text it wasn't going to be like a list of um you know what you needed to buy for the day (laughs) on the apps so um I finally found it but it was it was like going a weekend without you know taking a shower and but you can imagine uh how happy I was when I figured it out um and uh, you can read the story of that, well—not the story of me figuring
0: out, but you can read about the inscription in the book. Wonderful thing. <laughs> um, so you also have another book coming out very soon, or is it already out? It came out, bought off the press, like two days ago. Wow! Wonderful, congratulations. Um, this is a textbook called *The Art of Armenia*, published by Oxford yeah. University Press. So yeah. obviously, it's pretty exciting. Could you maybe yeah. give us a sneak? Snippet preview of what this is about? Sure. So
1: it's um, it is a guide. It's a, not a survey, so don't expect anything gigantic, but it's a guide to Armenian art, um, and it ranges from prehistory to the early 18th century, all media, and it's really meant to give um, non-specialists, uh, or the, not just the non-art historian, um, an introduction to, to Armenian art, and, uh, and an updated introduction, because our previous surveys uh, are from like the 1980s. So it was time to do something that was um, updated, reflected the changes in the field, the discoveries that have been made, and um, was accessible for students and scholars alike, um, and really came out of my own teaching and my own feeling like I just need something I can assign to students that's going to be, you know, readable accessible, and accessible um, and, and hopefully get them excited about the field. So that was my that was my goal with this.
0: Wonderful. Looking forward to reading it. It sounds great. Man, thank you. Um, and, you know, with two books out in such a really short span, do I dare even ask what's next? Uh-huh. Is it is it sleep or watching okay. Netflix or something? Cause that no, I'm not doing that because you know how it <laughs> is with the book.
1: There's always this lag time. Um, no, I am on to something new for... I'm very interested in the 10th, 11th centuries, and I'm interested in, in architecture and in, in the Bagratid uh, zone, but I'm really thinking about how to connect that with the litur- liturgy. Um, as you know, we have um, the ritual or mashdot from that period. We have, you know, text dating from that period, liturgical texts. So I've been reading those, reading about consecrations and foundations. And I want to weave those into my study of tenth um, and eleventh century architecture and sculpture in the northern part of Armenia. So that's my that's that is what I'm kind of diving into, or rather, just wading into, I guess, <laughs> at this moment.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what comes up next. Thank you. um and um and we really appreciate the time that you uh that you took to uh to come and talk to us a little bit about vigilant powers which is a wonderful book and uh and very informative um yes. and I appreciate it and thank
1: you for your excellent uh, interviewing and thank you to the SAS for this great um
0: opportunity right yes um thank you also for the, the SAS for just creating a forum where we can even kind of air out some ideas. Love it. Wonderful. Thank you, Christina.
1: Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye.